Welcome to Schools on the Front Lines, a podcast brought to you by EdSource and the Ball Frost Group. I'm your host, Carl Cohn. This special podcast series has focused on the multiple challenges faced by school leaders during the pandemic as they struggled with school closings, reopenings, and distance learning. These new challenges also present schools with new opportunities to get things right. In today's episode, we're going to talk with a national leader in the area of assessment and accountability as schools and districts begin to think about what kind of spring testing program might be in place here in California. We're welcoming Dr. Scott Marion, who is the Executive Director of the National Center for the Improvement of Educational Assessment in Dover, New Hampshire. Scott, tell us briefly about the work of the National Center for the Improvement of Educational Assessment. We go by the Center for Assessment for short. We've been in business now for 22 years. We are a nonpartisan, nonprofit consulting firm. We work at the intersection of technical know how, policy, and practice. And we support states largely on improving the quality of their assessment and accountability practices. But we also work with many large school districts, foundations, and others interested in a similar mission. In how many states, red and blue, are you and your colleagues working with on this issue? Well, we don't keep a tally by red and blue, but we work <laughs> in uh, about 35 states right now. I just did a count of technical advisory committees. Those are committees that states convene to help provide outside advice on their assessment or accountability programs. And collectively, We serve on about 40 state technical advisory committees. So we got red ones, we got blue ones, we got purple ones in there. (laughs) Great. So here in California in early November, before the election outcome was known, our state board of education voted unanimously to adopt a modified and shortened version of smarter balanced testing for this coming spring. What can you tell our listeners about that shorter version and what it means for our 6 million plus students here in California? Some of it was motivated by trying to have a shorter testing experience for kids in light of COVID school disruptions. But there are other states and were other states and Smarter Balance itself were looking at ways to shorten the assessment without COVID influencing that decision. COVID, I think, sped up some of the work around it and helped motivate some of the uh, state actions because the test was a pretty long test anyway. I think it's a very good test, but I also think that it could be shorter without giving up too much in the area of technical assessment quality and usefulness for stakeholders. So, Their shorter test is actually measuring the same content as the longer test, but perhaps with a little less breadth for each of the subdomains. So, for instance, within fifth grade mathematics, the previous test, I'm making this up, might have had 10 questions related to 
adding and subtracting fractions. And now the newer test might have something like five or six. So still adequate coverage, but not at the same level that you had on the previous test. How valid and reliable would the results of such a test administration be? And is it worth the monetary expenditure in the nation's largest state? Those are thankfully our, our empirical questions, so we, we could answer those once we have some data. The reliability question is an easier one because the testing contractor, in this case, Smarter Balanced Consortium, is able to evaluate that because they could mimic a shorter test. They, they already have the longer test, and they could just simply pretend that the students had a shorter experience and evaluate the reliability. And the reliability is essentially just the consistency over time of a particular test score in light of various contextual factors and others, knowing that we're not measuring, asking the kid every possible test question. And the reliability of the shorter test is quite high. It's almost an imperceptible difference between the shorter test and the longer test. The validity question is, does it adequately measure what kids are asked to know and be able to do? And I think from what I've seen from the early results, it does it well enough for an end-of-year assessment. We have to keep in mind these assessments are not designed to provide instructional information for individual kids. They're designed to provide programmatic information for schools and districts. They're designed to support accountability determinations at the state level. And so I think that this shorter test is, is still long enough to be able to do that. Now that we know that the U.S. Department of Education will have new leadership come late January, what are the prospects for a waiver of ESSA testing and accountability requirements similar to what was done last spring? My crystal ball is a little fuzzy right now, but on the accountability, I feel pretty confident in saying that states will have the opportunity to Wave is probably the right term. It's part of what they're calling an addendum process. So this is an addendum to last year's waiver. And it's basically saying if your accountability system is affected by the loss of the 2019-2020 testing data, then in fact, you might get a chance to sort of extend that waiver. So for example, 49 out of 50 states include some measure of student growth in their accountability system. Well, they don't have a score last year. So measuring growth is hard if without a prior score. And so the states now, there's some fancy workarounds that people could do if they trusted it. But the reality is most states are saying we can't measure growth in our accountability system and growth in many cases is about half the weight of the accountability determination. So therefore, we can't really calculate accountability in the way that we normally do. And except for a few little sticking points, they're going to be able to waive most of their accountability system. The other piece of it is the assessment piece. Now, we know that Secretary DeVos came out with a letter, a Dear Chief's letter, as they're called, that basically said, there's no waivers from state assessment. You have to figure out how to assess your kids. That is an easy thing to say if all kids are in school. And I believe that if all kids are in school or most kids are in school, 
by the time testing season rolls around, even an incoming Biden Secretary of Education is likely not going to waive state assessment requirements. Where we get into this challenging ground is if you start having significant percentages of kids learning remotely, then we might start seeing some flexibility offered to what's expected of states. Because I will say, no state that I know of right now has expressed an interest in administering their state assessment using a remote testing platform. So in other words, the kids would take the test at home, however they take it, that most states are not going to do that. So once you take that off the table, if a significant portion of your kids are not in school, it almost makes testing a moot point. Most states are interested in separating assessment and accountability this year. Folks in your line of work know that assessment is much broader than merely standardized tests. What other ways should we be using to get at the critical issues of learning loss and opportunity to learn indicators? We were writing early and often about this issue. We started writing about back-to-school assessment, what kids and teachers and principals and others should be doing when kids come back to school in September. So we were writing this in May and June, naively thinking that kids would be back in school in September. But the point was that there was all this talk of things like diagnostic assessment. And we said, we don't want a quote-unquote diagnostic assessment, A, because there really were none. People just changing labels on other assessments. But B, because the most important thing was to get a clear picture relative to the curriculum that kids are going to learn, how they're prepared for the first couple of units of instruction for the school year. And so we've been advocating for as much high-quality assessment embedded in curriculum as possible and that gives a truer picture of how kids are doing relative to the things that they're being taught by their teacher. Now, as we move through this year where we're seeing a lot of this remote instruction and assessment, we've continued to advocate for teachers to have the flexibility to think of different ways of assessing. So I always joke, if you're going to do a remote assessment for kids, and it's something that's easily Googleable. it's probably a bad question because these kids are clever. And especially as they get older, they can easily keep their smartphone out of the way of the, of the camera and, and look up the answer or use their calculator to figure out the answer. And so, you know, I, I don't think it was a, a, a fabulous experiment, but one of the things that, that, you know, advanced placement did last spring is that they, when they tried to administer their exam, they did administer the exams, they just gave the kids essay questions and they constrained the time. So they had less time to go look up answers and things like that. Now, a lot of kids complain that it changed the testing condition, but the idea was if it focused on little deeper learning activities and reduced the likelihood of corrupting the results. So we think that teachers in schools should be collecting information about what kids are really learning and then sharing that as transparently as possible with parents and showing parents what grade level work looks like and how their kids work looks relative to that grade level work and real depictions of student performance i run the center for assessment so i'm not anti-testing but we just have to keep it in its appropriate place 
Scott, do you have other suggestions for how local districts should get at the critical issue of providing additional learning opportunities and support for underserved students during this pandemic? Yeah, well, the first thing I would do would be to ask someone who's improved lots of schools and districts and states, somebody like a Carl Cohn. But, <laughs> um, but in all seriousness, we need a Marshall Plan sort of response. I don't know how we respond without serious federal funding to support something akin to a month or two months of summer school. Because, you know, one of the truisms in educational research is the time on task actually works. And the more time you expose kids to real learning, the more they're going to learn. And so I don't think this is something we're going to solve with, oh, Carl, you didn't learn this math fact, so after lunch, go see the teacher. I don't think we're talking about that kind of little response or we're going to extend the school day by 15 minutes. I think it's going to take a massive response. And that's one of the things that's really irking me about a lot of the testing discussion now. People are talking like we need this fine-grained data. We don't need a fine-grained solution. We need a really massive and blunt approach to fixing what's going on. And we certainly could tailor it to kids who've been more disenfranchised than others. So let's say you offered everybody a month of summer school, but some of the kids who have been uh, less connected to school for a variety of reasons, maybe they get two months or six weeks of summer school or something. Obviously, as you know, there's other types of massive structural interventions, but, but we need to be thinking on the massive scale, not on the, you know, rearranging the deck chairs scale. I'm talking with Scott Marion, Executive Director of the Center for Assessment. Scott How do you assess mental health and well-being in ways that make sense and are useful to policymakers? As you know, in California, your core districts have uh, taken seriously the notion of social-emotional learning, and they really led the country on trying to figure out how to measure social-emotional learning on a larger scale and to be able to use that information. I I think all schools and districts should be trying to assess kids in ways that make sense for those kids. So I actually do a lot of work in certain states that have pretty diverse cultures, states like New Mexico, where some of these social-emotional learning measures are a little culturally laden. So if we do stuff at a state level, some of that cultural sensitivity gets lost. So I would actually advocate that districts be provided with tools that they could use and adapt to best figure out what's going on in their locale, to figure out what kids are disengaged, what kids are really struggling, and to be able to actually intervene much more quickly with these kids. Again, if schools knew how to do this, they would be doing this. This is relatively new for schools and districts, and so they're gonna need some guidance on the kinds of things they should be doing. But I I think this is a case where it has to be much more locally tailored, because I don't know that we're gonna get a global picture. The core districts might be a little different because they've been at it for so long, so they might have better baseline information than, than others who are newer to it. The core districts being a consortium of large urbans in California. Right. Our listeners might be interested in the fact that in addition to your work as the head of the center, 
You're also a locally elected school board member there in New Hampshire. Tell us about your district and how that experience influences your work. Being on the school board in general has been a great experience. My service on the school board has really allowed me to see a lot of these policies and practice play out on the micro level. Being involved in all the planning and all the contingencies has been helpful for me to see how this plays out on the ground, just like all the other work I've done for the previous eight years before the pandemic. Just, you know, It is a way to actually have the close-up view of how all the stuff that we do at the state level makes its way down to the tiny district level. Finally, Scott, how has the pandemic changed you as a leader? And what would you like to share with our California audience about that? As you know, Carl, the center has very high caliber professionals, but even uh, early on, we were worried about everybody's mental health and adjustment. And so we would typically have one staff meeting a month, but we felt like, well, is that enough touch with people? So we would we started uh, hosting weekly brown bags on Fridays, and then we would do Zoom cocktail hours. And finally, our staff said to us, we're okay. Could you at least leave us alone? Because we got a lot of work to do. <laughs> so that was, but it's still good to check in with people because there are people, as you know, who would still say they're okay, but you could either see it from their email messages or if they're not communicating as much or if they're on these rants about something, you know, that maybe is not that appropriate. You could say, hey, maybe we should chat. As you know, work helps keep your mind off of a lot of the craziness around and a lot of the danger around. So our work has changed, but we recognize that we are very fortunate here at the Center for Assessment. And so I'm proud to lead this organization and I I'm, and I'm feel fortunate that I do. Well, Scott, thank you very much. Good luck to you there in New Hampshire and good luck to the Center and also to the Rye School District. Thank you. Thank you, Carl. That was Scott Marion, Executive Director of the Center for Assessment. Let's end this pre-holiday episode with a winter concert rendition of Yo Tannenbaum by the Long Beach Poly High School Jazz A Band, a school where your host spent six happy years as a school counselor. This has been Schools on the Front Lines, brought to you by EdSource and the Ball Frost Group. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Our opening theme is by Utah. Please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Carl Cohn.